Welcome to the Firing Log, podcast edition. I'm Odin, and I run the Anagama-West.com website. Tonight, a special treat, something really wild, glass blowing in an Anagama. Today, I spoke with Fred Herbst, and one of the things that they've tried in his Anagama is doing just that. Now, Fred teaches ceramics at Corning Community College, and he's done that since 2000. He went to grad school at the University of North Texas, and he got a Master's of Fine Art in Ceramics in 1998. Prior, he got a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Sculpture from the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point, 1994. He uh, was focused on bronze, bronze casting then. He lives in Corning, New York with his wife, Alicia Herbst, who's an artist. She does mostly conceptual work, like artist books and installations and things of that nature. Also with his six-year-old daughter, Emma, who is who has been dubbed the Anagama Supervisor, and at six years old has even stoked the kiln, if you can imagine. His work is mostly straight functional pottery, but he's getting back into sculpture, and he's particularly interested in East Asian art. He teaches a class on that subject at his school. Without further ado, then, let's jump right into glass blowing in an Anagama. But wait, there is an ado. There's a photo gallery that goes along with this podcast, and we discuss some of the pictures in it during the podcast. You can view this by going to the onagama-west.com website, look in the blog section, and in the blog section, look under sound and video. There you should find Fred Herp's podcast, and um, in, that, in the entry for that podcast is a link to the photo gallery, which you can follow, which you can follow along if you happen to be sitting at your computer. If not, you can take a peek at the pictures later. So now, no more adieus. We shall begin. Fred, I understand that you have done something very unusual with your Anagama kiln involving glass blowing. Can you tell us some about that? Yeah, in our last firing, we um, collaborated with some glass blowers from the Corning Mu- Museum of Glass. Um, and uh, it was... Uh, one of their events managers, Steve Gibbs, was really interested in our firing process. He came up and saw firing and was very excited about it. And um, we put a glass uh, crucible, which is basically a pot to melt glass in, in um, our load, and uh, melted glass during the firing. And then uh, two of the glass blowers from the museum came up, and they uh, during the firing they actually. Uh, got glass out of the side stoke and blew some pieces while we were working. Um, And it was a pretty amazing uh, event all the way around. Very interesting to see and talk to those guys and um, get to learn a lot about some of the glass technology that I didn't really understand before. Were they going for something particular with the glass inside the kiln? Um, yeah, apparently there's a lot of uh, historical precedent, and it sort of makes sense with the you know the ceramics history and wood firing. And apparently the the glass furnaces um, and melting process used to be all wood fired, and then at um, the same time that a lot of uh, ceramics technology moved over to like gas burners, glass did the same thing. So what they were trying to do was um, recreate some ancient Roman technology. Um, and they used a formulation from the uh, scientist at the Glass Museum. Um, and the pieces that they made with this formulation look very much like things I had seen at the Glass Museum in forms and also kind of a glass um, character. So that was really great. 
Now, I'd imagine, you know, if you have this pot of glass inside an anagama, that it's going to get ashes in it. Did that? Did they let you know how that affected the glass? If it did, well, they said that um, when I think they said when Venice switched over to um, uh, like a natural gas um, heated furnace, the glass blowers were really upset because it changed the consistency and the workability of the glass. And so they did say that um, you know they could see the ash falling into the crucible. Um, and, you know, it's adding fluxes into it. And um, I'm not sure if it helped or it hurt uh, the glass mix. I think they were um, they were kind of surprised how it worked because it wasn't like what they were used to using. It didn't have very much working time. It was really cold outside, too, so I think that had something to do with it. So they would have to move pretty quick from the kiln to work and then back to the kiln to reheat the pieces. So I've I've opened up one of the pictures that you've sent me of these guys yeah. doing the glass, and I'm looking at the one that's titled Lewis Olson Shaping Glass. Do you see that one? Yep. Yes. What What exactly is he doing there? Well, what happened right before that is the the picture that's um, the one titled Glass Blowing, and mm-hmm. he's got a, a blowpipe, and he took a kind of a it's called a gather a a big. Um, of dollop of glass at the end of the pipe and he stepped out um, from underneath our kiln shed roof and blew an air bubble into this piece and then what he did is he started making it into a small bottle um, what he's doing is he's actually with those metal um, they look like tongs yeah they're sort of like tongs he's kind of shaping the top and the interesting thing about glass blowing is that I don't know a huge amount about some of the technical things but He's actually um, he's shaping the top lip of the piece just a little bit. And what happens is um, in the next picture, the one that's Lewis Olson and Eric Meeks, Eric is actually putting a tiny little piece of um, hot glass on the bottom, and then what they do is they break the lip of the piece off of the blowpipe. So he's working. Um, Lewis is sort of working on it upside down, finishing the bottom first, and then they put that. A uh, little dollop on the bottom, break it off the blowpipe, and then take it over to the kiln. And reheating a bottle picture that's next. Um, I see that actually shows them heating that up, and then they finish the top. Um, it's sort of the opposite of how we work, where we sort of finish the tops of pots, and then we might trim a foot in it um, after they finish the bottom first, and then kind of shape the top as they go. It looks like it takes two people to do it too. Yeah, it's definitely a different thing. Um, you know, I think as potters, we're sort of used to a more solitary kind of making process. And uh, what they're doing is it's it's very much teamwork-oriented, and it was great to see how fluid they were. They really knew sort of, I mean, they would talk to each other about what they were doing, but they kind of anticipated what the other person needed to do. And then also the pieces, in a way, become sort of a collaboration in and of themselves where... You know, they can, uh, each, you know, person can do a little bit to help the other person make the piece they want to make. Um, you know, they'll grab a little piece of, you know, a little bit of glass inside the crucible and bring it over and maybe put a handle, um, you know, give them some glass to put a handle on. So it's a very collaborative process, and that's, it's really nice to see. I mean, firing for us is a very collaborative process, but they're doing that kind of all the way through the process, so. 
and when I, I, the glass, the two different glass blobs, they just stick together fine. There's no. Yeah, the both pieces are hot enough where you know they just kind of you know they fuse together. Apparently, they don't have any problems. You know, like we do with if a piece is too dry and you try to put a handle on it, it pops off. Where you know, if, I guess you know, there's a certain point where it might be too cold, but it didn't seem like they had any problems. You know, one piece was really, really orange hot, and the other one was starting to cool down. You know, they could attach um, the two together. And then there's some pictures of some finished glass. Is the one they're show they're making is that shown in here? Um. I'm not sure. I'll have to, uh, it's actually not in that picture. Okay. Um, but most of the forms were very similar, um, and they were all kind of based on the uh, a lot of the ancient Roman pieces that I had seen in the, the museum. So we kind of laughed about that, and you know, they really looked like they were it was a recreation of the formula of the glass, but also the shapes, and they could have went right into the museum next to the things that were thousands of years old i'm looking at the picture with the many pieces together Do, mm -hmm. does it have little bubbles in it or yeah the the glass does have um little bubbles in it and they actually there was a few pieces that had um tiny uh you know pieces of brick that fell off the the, the stoke hole neat uh, when they were moving in and out did, um, did they did they like that or did they those. Well, they they like the bubbles. Apparently, you know, it creates a little bit more of an opaque character to the glass. I mm -hmm. guess they really like the bubbles a lot, and they were sort of trying to. They did skim out any little chunks they could get to, but there were a few pieces that have, you know, a little bit of a thing. And and what one of them said was, you know, that it was a character stone, which was kind of funny because it, you know, to me, it kind of ties into the whole. You know, maybe Anagama effect of having you know crusty coals and things attached to the piece, and that not being necessarily a bad thing. Um, right, right. And um, there, it, one of the at one point it actually snowed on us and them when they were blowing glass, and I guess when the snow crystal would hit the glass, it would create a little. Um, they called it a crizzle. It's like a little crazing line, you know, a little crackle in that okay. um, surface. So apparently you can see that in some of the pieces um, where you could see, you know, the snow actually fell on them. And, you know, so how do they get these things off the, how do they get the things off the, the blowing rod the or pipe. the blowing tube pipe? Yeah, what they do is they, um, like in the picture of Lewis Olson shaping glass, with those tongs, he's sort of scoring the glass. And then they just tap the rod, and it, it just comes off. It's kind of amazing to see it. Um, and then when the piece is totally finished and they're going to put it in the little annealing kiln um, or annealing oven, they do a similar thing where they dip the tongs in water, and then they kind of pinch around where the piece is attached to the rod. And then once it, when they, they take it over to the annealer, and when it's in there, they tap the rod again, and it just kind of pops off. Um, it seems like it's real easy. Um, it doesn't seem like it would work, but it does. Okay, so that, I guess in that annealing kiln, that's how they keep it from getting sharp edges when they cut it. Right, or... there's no, well, I think what they can do is they can grind them later if there oh, okay. are. But, you know, there's just, uh, the, the pieces that I saw were um, pretty clean. Um, 
and I'm assuming, you know, it's all skill-based. Like, you know, they really, these guys were top-notch um, glass blowers. They really knew exactly what to do. And, you know, I'm assuming as you learn, you get better at, um, you know, detaching these things or, you know, getting them off the piece of the blowpipe or whatever without damaging them or anything like that. Sure. By the same token, though, if you're going to blow glass in an onagama, it only seems fair you get to do some grinding. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're right about that. We can't have all the fun. Do you think they're going to come back? Yes, actually they are. Um, In April, we fire, uh, usually we fire our kiln three times a year, once in the fall, once in the spring, and once in the summer. And they'll be um, working with us again during our April class firing. Um, We've already talked about that and got it in the the plans. That'll be April 2007? Yes, yeah. Um, I think that's probably, it usually happens about the first week of April. And sometimes we still get snowed on in New York in April, um, but uh, it's a nice firing. Yeah, you're you're in a really interesting place for, you know, pottery and, and glass, obviously, Corning. Yeah, it's a great place. I really love where we live. Um, Alfred and um, the New York State College of Ceramics is about an hour away. Um, Corning, the people that live here are pretty amazing. There's a lot of really high-tech stuff and also... Um, some great glass blowers have settled in the area, kind of around um, the downtown area. They have uh, some studios and galleries in our small downtown. Corning's one of the is always on the list of the top um, small um, art towns in the country. So it's a great place to live that way. Do you think you're going to give it a try? Glass blowing? Yeah. I don't know. I it's it's really interesting to me to see it. Um, I think I'm a little bit more interested at, in, in actually glass casting. Um, it tries to make some solid pieces, more sculptural forms. Mm. Um, I like the, there's so many similarities with forms um, between clay and glass, and I, I really like to go to the museum and see those things. But uh, one of the glass blowers um, was actually saying that we were talking about that idea that, you know, after a certain amount of time, you get good at that process that you're really interested in and sometimes you see another process that is interesting too but you sort of feel like well do I want to start all the way over Mm -hmm. Um, but then I thought about it too and it's like well you know maybe I should take it up as a hobby (laughs) you you know I think when we were talking before you mentioned um you were you were watching them mix up the the stuff they put in their crucible and it, it occurred to you it was just glaze yeah, very much so. It's it is it's very similar materials. Um, you know, they use a little bit of iron for color. They used um, I think they used dolomite. Um, you know, there's some feldspars apparently that are used in in uh, glass making. The only thing it didn't have in it was clay, um, which sort of makes sense. And uh, it was talking to the the glass blowers, there was a lot of overlap in materials um, and technology. So we we really got to discussing some things that made a lot of sense to both of us, both parties. Did they give any indication whether um, the uh, the wood fire affected the color? I know they talked about how it's workability, but how about the color or appearance of the glass? Um, not, they didn't say much about that part of it, although one of them thought that um, our atmosphere was on 
more of an oxidized side um, because of the color that he saw in the glass. When he first, um, after the the, the um, glass had been in there for a while, he he just went, kind of dipped into it to as it had melted to see what it looked like. Um, this was a you know maybe uh, six or seven hours before they were going to try the first um, blowing attempt. And he right away thought it looked like it was very oxidized, and of course that made me kind of, I was worried um, that we were over-oxidizing the firing. Um, as the glass melted more and they added more, it got darker green. So I think it kind of evened out um, over time. And uh, and the results that we got um, from the firing, I'm not worried about it. I was, after the fact, of course, I wasn't worried about it being too oxidized. We had um, some of our celadon green colors and glazes, so it seemed like it must have reduced enough for us. Well, let, let's change the subjects a little. Let's talk about first. Let's talk about the kiln. And there's some good pictures of the kiln on the website of the construction and what it looks like mm-hmm. when it's finished, as well as as well as nice diagrams. Um, but uh, why don't why don't you just talk a, a little bit about you know, how you came to build this kiln? Well, I wanted um, after graduate school, I taught at a a community college in Dallas, Texas. Um, I went to graduate school at University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, and that was my first introduction to wood firing. We had a Naborigama kiln there, and then I went to. Uh, teach at Brookhaven College. I was also the studio t- technician for sculpture and ceramics, and there was a smaller wood kiln there. So I saw the great benefit of having a wood kiln based at a community college um, as a way of kind of exposing the students to a really advanced um, technique uh, opportunity and also building a community of people. Um, so I was thinking about when I got the job in Corning, right away I started thinking about building a wood kiln. The, the area is perfect for it. There's a lot of, it's heavily wooded. There's a lot of small um, sawmills, so there's easy access to fuel. Um, it, it just seemed like the thing to do. So um, I was working on plans to do it, and I was, I was kicking around different design ideas, um, Anagama, you know, train kiln, uh, smaller, maybe a, single-chamber catenary arch kiln. And um, one of my friends, Simon Levin, and I started kind of an email discussion about that, and um, we I kind of eventually settled on the Anagama style because of its flexibility and sort of the maximum um, amount of work it would take with students so that they would have to be there working shifts. We could do a lot of different things. So that was how it got settled. And then... I've built kilns before this, but I had never built an anagama, so I was a little unsure about um, putting it together. Mm-hmm. So I talked to Simon again, and we um, worked it out so that he taught a, a, a college course um, on kiln building for the college. Um, it was a two-week class over the summer of 2003, group of students, and some are pictured on the website, um, built this group of 10 students built this kiln. They did an amazing job in, in um, two weeks to get it t- together. Um, everything kind of fell in place, um, and it was a great experience all the way around, and it's been an, a beautiful kiln to fire since um, it was completed. When when did you complete it? Uh, the summer of 2003. Okay. 
And how many times have you fired since then? I think we're up to almost 10 now. Um, our first firing was That's a disaster. A it, it was really not... <laughs> the first firing was just not successful. Um, there were some errors I made um, in the air, uh, air input to the firebox, main firebox, and it just stalled out. So the first... The first firing was sort of a, it's, it was a practice, I guess. Um, I know it's, it's kind painful. of, I'm sorry, I know it's kind of embarrassing to talk about messing up, but by the same token, I think it's probably really one of the most useful things to talk about. Oh, yeah. I um, think I've learned more that way than from the successes. Yes, I have seven seven error firings under my belt next one i know <laughs> i'm gonna get it i'm gonna get it right but yeah um what do what do you what do you think went wrong the first firing what was the problem with the first firing? yeah yeah i had about half as much air openings as i really needed to have um this kiln has a really big firebox um and a pretty good sized chimney too so when it has enough when it has the right amount of air um going into the firebox it, it it's like a rocket it really fires great um and it was kind of one of those totally sleep deprived um rushing to break the door situations not really thinking about it um and uh it just it it happened that i didn't really think about um as we were putting it in um, what we needed to do so we got to cone four installed um at cone four and we tried everything we could think of to make it work um and uh it nothing worked so we just stopped um and then a lot of the pieces actually went um were refired at uh, a gas kiln at a, a college that's pretty nearby and they looked nice um so that wasn't a total failure um the second firing i really ta- i talked to simon again um and we really talked out the air situation and it was great. The second firing, there was a lot of good pots that came out. And since then, um, it's been a great kill in the fire. My, my most dreadful firing happened when, um, I, uh, I, I was just, I was trying to increase the amount of reduction I'd get for, for whatever reason. And, uh, mm-hmm. I, I fired with almost no going, no air going into the kiln. Yeah. And um, it it got pretty hot, but it didn't get hot enough, and it also developed just the most horrendous colors. This sort of institutional purple, pink. <laughs> it, it was. It, I stood outside the kiln, just smashing stuff. It was just yeah. it was real disheartening. But yeah, that, air air is you know the kiln has to breathe. And it, I think um, yeah that that's definitely true and. What we've done now is that we have to be careful not to allow too much air in um, because we we could easily overfire um, the front of our kiln if we just opened it wide open and um, you know got it just blazing hot. I think those mistakes are really really helpful though, like you're saying you know I think um, in the last couple of years, I've heard some great potters that I really respect talk about that idea that you know you have to make mistakes. You have to make some bad pots to learn, you know, something. If you're not really, if that's not happening, you know, you're not really going to grow. It's the, the sad thing though, is it has to happen after so much wood 
and, yeah. you know, there's so much <laughs> moving, stacking, chopping, buying, oh, yeah. what, whatever. There's nothing about wood that's cheap. It's expensive no. in money or labor or both. And no. uh, so true. many so many times I've made a mistake. And then later on I'll just be browsing through a book and I'll read over something that I'd read over a dozen times before. And right. all of a sudden I'll get it and I'll be like, holy cow, so-and-so said not to do this. So why did right. I go and do it? Right. Well, hopefully you don't make those mistakes more than once. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's the key is to learn, yeah. learn from that. Um, now I, I understand that you've fired the kiln a couple different ways. There's, um, you've tried to do uh, reduction cooling in different ways and some other kinds mm-hmm. of cooling. So, why don't why don't we start with why don't we start with reduction cooling? And first okay. off, it's that's something I've never really fooled around with. So why don't, mm-hmm. if you could explain some of the theory behind it, that would be good. Well, reduction cooling, I think, is 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 very useful if you're firing a lot of um, iron-rich clay, so real dark stonewares. What it does is what happens um, is that you fire the kiln normally up to the point where you're you're finished, and you decide whatever point that is. It might be duration or, you know, cones have dropped or you know, your ash has melted as much as you want it to be. Then uh, what we've done, and it, I think it's different, you know, depending on how your kiln is um, set up. You can also do this in, uh, you know, a gas-fired kiln too. Um, we close all the ports. We, we seal up the air in the front. We seal up the main stoke door. We seal up all of our side stoke uh, openings except for one. And um, and close the, the damper and the chimney. And so what we do is, well, um, we what we used to do um, is we would throw in um, you know, four or five small sticks into one of the side stokes. And what happens is there's no openings left, and so you get this amazing back pressure. Um, what that does is, as the kiln is, it does it's not adding any heat to the kiln. You're trying not to have it climb in temperature. You have it, you want to have it dropping but it keeps the kiln in a very heavy reduction on the way down. What's happening technically is the, the form of iron in the clay um, doesn't turn back to an oxidized state, which is more, sort of a brown color. Um, it stays more, uh, it stays reduced, which is a darker black, gray, um, and we get a lot of red and orange colors out of the dark clays when we reduction cool. Um, this summer in Jason Hess's firing workshop, what we did was a little bit different. We closed up um, the damper and we uh, basically filled whatever we could, whatever side stoke or front uh, firebox, with wood. And then, you know, basically as much wood as we could and then slowly closed up the damper um, and then waited a little while for it to kind of clear out, which took a while. And then we did it again. Um, so you can choose, you know, what point you stop that at. Um, you know, we, the first time we reduction cooled, we, I think we are done when it was, the kiln was down to about 1900. Um, other firings, uh, when Dan Murphy came for his firing workshop, I think we reduction cooled down to about 1400 Fahrenheit. Um, and I think with Jason, we, I think we are done when it was about 1600 maybe. Um, so there's different theories about when to stop, kind of how to, to achieve that. But, but the, the whole goal is essentially to 
uh, change the iron um, in the dark clay bodies. In the pictures that you've uploaded, do you ha- are some of those examples of the reduction cooling? Yeah, um, a lot of them are actually. Um, which, which ones? In the, the the beginning, sort of the beginning of the. Actually, there's a picture um, of me side stoking during the cooling reduction. That one's called Fred cooling. Um, kind of at the, the beginning. And then the dark clays one, those are reduction cooled. Um, and then in the, my work, um, in the comments or the notes, there's uh, different, um, you can see the darker clay bodies mostly are the ones that are reduction cooled, like the iron teapot, the iron vase, um, the iron bottle. So the majority of those are, um, but anything that's darker typically was reduction cooled. It, uh, we, talked, we talked earlier, you changed things in your last firing, I think it was. Mm-hmm. What, what did you change? Well, we did a normal cooling. So instead of um, you know, closing everything up and then as it was cooling, adding more fuel, we basically said, okay, that's, we're done. Um, let's uh, you know, put one more big stoke in and then let's seal it up and, and finish. And so we didn't do any of the, once it was, we said, okay, that's it. Um, we didn't add any more wood to it. Um, and what happened was the the colors on the lighter clays were, were shifted a lot more towards orange and red and really nice flashing and kind of the greener um, ash glaze effects. Um, the dark ironstonewares didn't look, very good. Um, they were brown, just not a nice, there was no variation really in the color. Um, and so it, it, what it showed us, and kind of, I'm starting to believe this too, is that um, in, a, in a big kiln like ours, it's hard to uh, do, you know, a, an entire kiln load of dark clay bodies and then, you know, reduction cool. Um, or, you know, if we have light clay bodies, we would just normally cool. The light clay bodies don't really benefit that much, in our experience, from reduction cooling. Um, so porcelains and light stonewares um, have come out better when we did just a normal sort of cool down, no reduction at the end. Um, and then that, the iron-rich clays look better when they're reduction cooled. So it, you kind of, um, I have a few things in my those two ideas in my head now that's really interesting um the clays i use the clays i'm using <clears throat> for the most part i use just white stoneware and i'm pretty much given up on porcelain because mm-hmm. it comes out so it just comes out like dumpling white all mm-hmm. the time um very functional glazed everywhere but just really right. dull uh but i i there was a clay that i used when i built the kiln in between the bricks it's essentially the mortar clay. It fires completely dark brown, and uh, I wonder how, I wonder how that would be if I tried a reduction cooling. It's um, yeah. It doesn't make very nice stuff. I, I I mean, it makes interesting stuff. It's really hard to explain. I'm not sure if I like it or not. Mm-hmm. But I, I see it has potential for some interesting stuff. Right. I think. Um... I like the reduction cool on the dark clays a lot. It really, um, in the pictures, like that iron teapot of mine, 
With the uh, one with the handle? Okay. I see with it. the log handle, yeah. That has a, a really, really sort of bizarre um, rusty surface on it, and that's entirely because of the reduction cooling. Um, it's a beautiful surface um, in the vase, um, the iron vase form, too. We had these um, beautiful kind of iron crystals on the surface that I hadn't seen before. Um, so those those things turn out great, but then again, like this last firing where we did our normal cooling, we didn't get, you know, we, we got some really just drab, not nice um, surfaces on those things. But then the, the light clays were really great. One of the things I do with um, my porcelain clays is I actually add, we have a, a mixer at school so I can mix my own clay. Um, I add a little bit of red art clay to all my um, porcelain clays. Um, and what that I found that uh, does is it gives them more color. Yeah, I've, I've recently it's it's helped a bit. I have some low fire red clay, mm-hmm. and I just make a slip out of it. And when I'm throwing, I throw with that, and that that helps a lot. Yeah, that's a great idea. Um, you what you know what's really amazing to me is I'm looking at this uh, Fred Herbst vase, the cylindrical form with the six beads of glass on it. Right, right. Six, seven, lots of beads that of glass. Really beautiful. Laguna B-Mix does not look like that in the, in this, in the kiln I'm, I'm firing in. Yeah. At all. It's weird. It, it, it those, uh, that form was right at the firebox, right in the very front. Um, and we fire, I've had good results with the B-Mix and also there's a new B-Mix wood fire that has come out. Um, and we've used that too. It's weird to me that it has that peachy color because it is so. It was so close to the firebox. Um, a lot of times, uh, those those clays closer to the firebox will turn more of a kind of a bluish color. That's exact. Actually, anywhere anywhere in the kiln, it's blue on the one side and this sort of uh, '70s couch. You know, the ones with the farm or the <laughs> farm scenes in the back. This sort of '70s rust color on the right. back side. And wow. I have never been able to make myself like it. No, that's but that's beautiful. Those yeah. those salmons and and a little hint of yellow and those lovely yeah. drips. I was I really surprised the, when I read Laguna B Mix. Yeah, yeah. I don't use a lot of commercial clay since I can mix um, my own and um, experiment with different recipes. But um, B Mix is definitely. Actually, uh, one of the local potters that fires with us was the first one to bring B-Mix work in, and he had some great results with it right away, so I decided I'd try it out, and it, it worked nice for me, too. Um, you know, just like any, this uh, kiln is a big kiln, so we can get, you know, six to 700 pieces in a firing, so there's not always, you know, I'm not getting, um, you know, 100% great pots out. I don't think anyone ever does. It would be, uh, but, it would be but, a lot to... You'd have a lot of unreasonable expectations. Yeah, right, right. So this firing um, was really successful because I didn't have to take so many trips to uh, um, the dumpster and smash pots like I usually do. <laughs> I, uh, I definitely have my share of um, uh, wasters. We've actually started kind of a, a, a shard pile next to the kiln out in the woods um, that gets added to um, on a semi-regular basis, but... Um, this firing was we thought was pretty successful um, because there wasn't as much, uh, at least for my work anyway. Um, I figure you know if it doesn't 
I do refire a few things, but a lot of times they just um, they go away. I have so many shards. I've used it as aggregate. <laughs> I've used shards as aggregate and, and when pouring various things in yeah. different places because I've got shards just everywhere. You know, right. I'm looking at, at your small bottle, the one that was fired on its side with the seashells that's so mm-hmm. red. Yeah. Which firing? What kind of firing was that fired in? That was in this last one also. Um, and it's actually the same clay as the the uh, tall kind of cylindrical bottle. That's It's also Laguna B-Mix? No, that's uh, a oh, oh, clay oh. body um, the that I made. Bottle. Yeah, it's... Uh, the red one. It has again. It's it's mostly it's mostly a porcelain, but it has some red art clay, just a little bit in it. Um, and I was really happy with how it turned out. It was a really nice. You should uh, be more than happy. That looks like that looks yeah. like some kind of shigaraki clay. You've got. Yeah. You must have put in some little <laughs> little bits of feldspar, but not too much, yeah. and yeah, and ground that's fine right. enough, but not too not too small. Right. I mean, that's yeah. Really... I was I was really happy with that. Those so, things. is that clay body a trade secret or? You want to share? Oh no, no. Any, I, um, you know, I can post any of that kind of stuff if you want me to. Yeah, I'd love to mix up a batch of that because that that clay is, that clay is beautiful. Yeah, it uses the bottle's beautiful. Yeah, thanks. Um, One of the things I've been using a lot is Helmer porcelain or Helmer Kalen. um, Okay. And that, I know that's a. I think that one's from Idaho, so I would imagine on the West Coast it's pretty easy to get. I was talking with a person just the other day who was talking to me about um, some clay from Idaho. Mm-hmm. It might to... be. A, I think it's um, it's an easy one for me to get. I, actually, there's a couple East Coast suppliers that are carrying it. Um, and I think that's one thing I've really been interested in the whole time is um, different uh, materials and these different clay bodies things. Because, you know, in Anagama, I think your clay... Um, is the thing that you can really one of the things you can really experiment with um you know in a gas kiln your glaze recipes are where i think a lot of people will focus right Um, but for me the clay is is the key Um, but yeah if you want me to i can definitely post um, oh yeah i i covet excuse me i covet that clay body yeah i i just feel like you know i i get clues from other people and it's my job to you know spread any success that i have to other people too I appreciate that. I, mean, I think that. that's how the field moves forward if everyone's really open and sharing about what they're doing because everyone does something different with it. And you know, it's absolutely true. Every every piece of knowledge we have in the world is built on somebody something else from prior right. times. And the right. less it's hidden, the more the more things can um, advance rapidly. Right. And uh, you know, of course, different people have different economic interests in keeping things private, but by the same token, um, right. humanity as a whole has a great interest in in things being open and available yeah. and knowledge yeah. knowledge being shared. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, I when I was a student, everyone, uh, my professors and other um, grad students were open about what they were doing. And I feel like, you know, I, if anyone asked me for anything, I'm definitely going to share it. And because, I you know, I think that's one of the things I've always – thought was really great about the ceramics community as a, as a whole was that people were very willing you know, to do that and you know everyone is a student of someone or something else um, and I you know my goal is to have my students make better pots than me so 
um, I can definitely um, share anything that I've figured out along the way. The next piece I want to talk about, Fred, is this uh, one that's titled Fred Herbst Iron Bottle. Mm-hmm. Do you see that one? Yes. Tell me, tell me a bit about that one. That's really, that's really lovely too. That um, it was actually in a reduction cooled firing, and it does have an applied glaze. It's actually the same glaze um, that's on the the one piece that's below the drip uh, bowl, the one that has the kind of the yellowish coloration. Um, that's the same glaze. The drip bowl is on a really light porcelain style body, okay. and then the the iron bottle is on a very very dark stoneware. And I was actually really surprised at the the difference. Um, I was expecting the glaze to be whiter because it's a very pretty opaque glaze. Um, it has a bunch of titanium in it. Um, but uh, on the iron bottle, it did develop a pretty interesting surface, um, beautiful glaze. How much of the work do you say benefits from having an applied glaze and how much doesn't? And How do you figure that out? Um, it's a personal choice. We use a lot of Chino glazes. Um, a lot of my students will use a Chino glaze over the whole piece, and I do that um, a fair amount too. Um, I would say that pieces towards the back of our kiln art um, have more glaze. Um, the things at the very front, if they're glazed, it, it's kind of scary because there can be a, a good amount of ash um, accumulation and pieces getting stuck to wadding. Um, I've Recently, in this last firing, one thing I've thought about doing, and I think I'm going to do it in our April firing, is to fire some pieces inside a few little saggers to protect them from a lot of the ash. Um, the chino glazes that I've been using are, are really nice when they're a little bit cooler than we've been uh, reaching in temperature. The shell, bottle, so I want to... the shell bottle is an example of that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so in the Shino bottle, too, that um, is right by it, that one um, was fired a little bit cooler towards the back, um, you know, still reaching cone 10, but not quite what we reached in the front of the kiln. Um, but the glazed, I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of potential for glazed work in Anagamas. It's not done a lot, but I think if, you know, you can kind of hide pieces behind other things, and there's a lot of... Um, think room for that one thing that i've um had problems with is some glazes will not tolerate being fired for four days very well i've had some glazes that when i had fired in um, soda kilns they had been really beautiful kind of iron saturated glazes um in the onagama that came out with these enormous glass blisters um just a horrible um result and so you have to do a lot of testing just like anything else to make sure um, you know that they're going to actually be able to deal with that uh, and the same goes for clay bodies too uh, you know when you're firing for multiple days some clays just can't handle that you mentioned you're making a lot of your own clays how do you go about figuring out what you know whether you think it's going to work or not well one thing I do is I just uh you know, I read anything I can. I find, um, you know, Jack Troy's book has been great. I find any article on wood firing that I can get my hands on. If there's clay recipes in there, I, I copy those down. I've actually tested oh, over 50 clay bodies now. I mix up really small batches. Wow. That's a yeah, I have. Yeah, I have, um, you know, it's only like a 1,000 grams, so it's enough to make 
like three or four small cups, you know, and then I kind of get them in all over inside the, the firing. And I've learned a lot that way. There's some clay bodies that I I kind of have a system worked out where, you know, if it's if if it's a really good one, I have a list of good clay bodies. If it's one that's has potential for some reason, then that's on another list. And the ones that are just bad, in my mind, um, I just eliminate those recipes. And then I go back and I'll look at what's working, what's in the the really good ones. Um, you know, for example, some of the porcelain clays where you know the the author of an article or you know internet thing or whatever um, has put in a certain type type of kaolin or maybe it's a percentage of feldspar or maybe it's you know including a little bit of red art clay. Um, these little clues give me ideas about what I want to do next. The um, that red sort of more shigaraki style clay was actually um, a variation of. Um, Dan Murphy, a friend of mine, his um, his porcelainous clay. I just reversed a couple of materials and, and substituted a different tail, and and uh, that's what I got out of it. Um, I'm not sure what his result is all the time with it, but um, I kind of I really like that part of it, just uh, experimenting and seeing what I can get. Well, there's no question about it. That that clay body's a that's a winner. So I owe Dan that, you know, he was the one that gave me the clue for that one. It was just, you know, changing different, um, uh, swapping out some materials um, to create that one. Um, and I've also, you know, uh, uh, there's been some really great articles. Um, uh, Dick Lehman has one about long-term firing, and there's a lot of great clay body recipes in that article that I've altered. and I've tested his original recipe, and then, tried out some different things in each of those and I've had some great success with those clays too so you know again it's just I'm just finding things anywhere I can um, kind of as a baseline test and then um, if there's potential there um, you know try and see things and when I do find a good one you know I usually mix you know like 100 pounds of it and, and make um, pots with that one for the next firing and if it's one that continues to work I'll just keep using it now, a little while ago, you mentioned you wanted to do some stuff in Sagers, and uh, what what are you planning to do in that? I think what I'm going to try is um, uh, some different Shino things. I've um, the Ian Curry Shino, where it's basically uh, nepheline cyanite and clay. I've had some really good um, success with, um, and I want to try that some more. I've also done a bunch of things recently with. Um, having an iron slip underneath the Shino, and that Shino bottle in the gallery has an example of that where it's a, a stamp texture that I inlaid an iron slip into, and then um, Shino glazed on top of that, um, and I've gotten some really nice results with that approach. Um, in this last firing, some of my Shino glazes uh, were really um, o almost over-fired. They're fine, they're shiny, and they look good, but they're not really what I was looking for with that um, glaze. And so I want to try to protect them a little bit more. Do you have an idea how many cords of wood you go through when you're firing? I have, honestly, I have no idea. Um, and that's that's really not probably a good thing. I just basically, we get our, um, I, I just get as much wood as I can mm -hmm. on site. We get our, um, the bulk of our firing wood from a sawmill that's pretty close to my house and they deliver a dump trucks full um, of softwood slab and we have at least two dump trucks full um, 
on site during a firing. Um, and then some regular hardwood, cordwood too, as much as you can. Um, so it's burning a lot of wood. That's uh, um, that's obvious when we get done with the firing. And during the firing, you say, oh, I have plenty of wood. And then at the end, you look in, there's nothing hardly left. Um, <laughs> that's the scary part. You, you've got, at least you've got students, and you can make them stack and stuff. Yeah, yeah, it, it's nice to have, um, I have some really great students. They work really hard, and they're used to working hard, and um, it, it's not a big deal for them to come in and help us stack or split wood or you know, any of that kind of stuff. They're used to it, and, and um, I really appreciate all, all the things that they do um, to keep things running, and they do a great job during the firing shifts. We always have students firing, and we have local artists that fire with us, too, and we usually have um, some, you know, there's always at least one experienced wood fire person there, um, you know, 24 hours a day for the whole firing. Uh, I get to go home and sleep every once in a while. That's, that's nice. I know I still have trouble, I still have trouble tearing myself away from the kiln. Yeah. So I end up, um, uh, I end up just not showering for several days. <laughs> the cats like me a whole lot better, but right. nobody else does. That's great. What is it about wood firing that interests you enough to make you go through this incredible amount of labor building and firing a kiln, firing it three times a year, and a big one at that? Yeah. I think I've, I've thought a lot, a lot about that recently. Um, I think that one of the things for me is that uh, – it, it's necess- in our kiln especially, it's necessary to have a community um, involved in it. Um, you know, I can't do this myself. And um, and I, I really wanted that kind of thing, that situation to develop where there's a group of students working with um, people from outside, um, people making a living, making pots, um, or, you know, people teaching other schools or students. And it's that community, I think, that's really important to me with this process. Um, I grew up in Wisconsin, and I, I started thinking about how um, my mom was the first generation off the farm. And I heard a lot of stories from my grandmothers um, about in the the days before, you know, tractors and things, um, there, was, there was a community that went around, and they had to help each other. And one of the things I don't think we have so much anymore in our culture is that experience where you know, you rely on someone else really directly to achieve a goal. Um, so that part of it is really important to me. Um, there's also, I think, the, the, the sheer work of it. You know, I really, I really enjoy being outside, um, you know, working with the wood and, and the flame and the heat, um, all that stuff has kind of gotten into my bones now where I feel like I need to have that, um, my undergraduate degree is in sculpture and I did a lot of bronze casting and just that sense of you're working with a really elemental process. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're, you're turning, um, this flexible material back into stone again by using fire. Um, so that's, that's an exciting part of it. And also, you know, the finished work, um, I've, from the very start when I started out in clay, I really responded to atmospheric firing the most, I guess. Um, I know there's a lot of really great pieces, um, people working in all the different ceramics techniques. Um, but for me, I really, in my own work, I really respond the most to, um, you know, having this clay surface 
and uh, and not covering up anything that I've done when I when I made the piece, um, and then seeing how I can arrange the pot in the kiln and fire, and then have um, again that process that's slightly out of my control, um, or sometimes fully out of my control, um, affect the final product. So there's a lot of different things that go into it, and it's something where there's so many different variables that I don't think I'll ever, never be bored, never figure out everything about it. Um, and I think that's exciting. I think the internet has really helped things in a lot of ways. Um, the one thing that I think um, this process does help, though, is, is to bring people back together, you know, away from, it's not just, um, you know, an email, but you're actually, you're around other people for extended periods of time. You know, it takes for us it takes three days to load and you know four days to fire. So for an entire week, you're focused on that one thing, um, and all the other stuff goes away, um, which is exciting. You know, you don't have to worry about if you have you know support like I do. Um, I have a great wife and daughter, and they um, keep everything going at home, um, so I can do that. But I think that idea that, you know, there's opportunities for people to connect in a real direct way and then also connect across the country and across the world um, at the same time is, is really um, fascinating to me, how things are developing. The, I hardly know how I learned things before the Internet. I can hardly remember, <laughs> you know, actually right. having to go to a library to find right. something out and, it, you know, it not being there and then have to right. wait while interlibrary loan works and yeah because or mean, even the whole uh using a card catalog has just become it seems like ancient uh history that's as annoying as using the phone book <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> gosh just you know quest dot com or whatever and right type in a few letters and bam you got the number i i'm way too spoiled yeah um you know, I do love the romantic notions of doing something primitively, but by the same token, then I go wash my hands and sit down at the computer and, you know, right. maybe maybe listen to a podcast or, right. or you know, watch a watch a movie. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> any any of those kinds of things. Battlestar Galactica, definitely. <laughs> Saturday, Sunday nights at the kiln. You know, gather yeah. the cats around. Right. Download it. Watch it. Uh, legally downloaded through iTunes, <laughs> for the record. Yeah, there. right. <laughs> <laughs> but, That's good. Um, you're also, I guess you're having a workshop this coming summer? Yeah, every year um, in the summertime we bring a visiting artist in to lead um, a one-week um, firing workshop. And um, we've had some great uh, people come in already, uh, Simon Levin, Dan Murphy, uh, Jason Hess. And now uh, this summer coming up, We'll have a potter from Maine, um, Jody Johnstone, who uh, did a traditional uh, two-year apprenticeship in uh, Bizen, Japan. Um, and she has a, a 24-foot anagama in Maine. Um, and Holy, she'll be, that's enormous. <laughs> yeah, it is big. Um, I've seen pictures of it. I haven't actually gotten to go out and, and see it in person yet, but hopefully sometime I'll do that. Uh, anyway, she's going to be... Um, in Corning from uh, July 10th through the 16th. So we do um, basically like a two-and-a-half-day loading, and then we fire for the rest of the week um, straight uh, for um, 
forming process, talk about her firing process and some of the different um, ideas that she has. Now, is this... And it's a great way for us to learn new things um, and, uh, you know, and for my students to, to see some really great people and, and be around that kind of level of um, craftsmanship and ideas and experience. Is this open to people who aren't students at the school? Yes, it is. We... Um, we have it open to the general public. Um, our the CCC students um, get the workshop at a heavily discounted rate. Um, What's the price for, the general, for regular folks? For regular people, it's uh, two hundred dollars for the the workshop. Oh, that's not much. Uh, yeah, you're you know you you bring your work. Um, we basically prepare it the first day and then start loading right away. So you know whatever work you want to bring. We kind of do a big sorting at the beginning of the priority pieces to make sure that it's pretty equitable um, as far as the amount of work going in. And then um, that covers, that fee covers all the, the firing materials and everything. So, um, And then, uh, you know, the artist usually brings work along, too, that's been fired at their, their kiln and, um, you know, usually smaller cups and things for people to buy if they want to at their workshop. So... It's nice to be able to take a little bit of that home um, after the workshop. And if someone wanted, oh, go ahead. So we, you know, we fire for the week, and then the the following week um, after the work, you know, during the cool down, we usually, you know, on that following weekend, we um, come back to unload, and um, everybody gets to take their pieces. If someone's interested in doing this, how do they get in contact with you? Um, The best way is probably emailing me. uh, and or calling. Um, what it's, what's your email and phone number? Uh, my email is um, herbst at corning, and I, I'll just spell it out. It's h e r b s t at uh, corning dash cc dot edu, and my office phone number is six zero seven nine six two nine two nine seven. And anybody can contact me, and um, we'll get you on our list. Usually we have about 10, 12 people in it, and that works out great. Everybody gets a good amount of space and has a good time um, with the firing. Um, And um, it's a great learning experience. And so ends another episode of the Firing Log, podcast edition. Further information is available on my site, including Fred's very choice clay recipe. Um, It's www.onagama-west.com. Thank you for listening. And I think I'll take you out now with Kiln Cat Silver's Humming.